Hello, listeners. This is just a small message up top before the show, because we are currently one month out from our first ever Pontifax anniversary. To celebrate, we are going to be releasing an anniversary special, and part of that is going to be answering your questions, AMA style. So we've already received some fantastic questions, but if you want to know anything about Popes or the podcast, about myself, about Fry, about anything at all, now is your chance to ask. So please, please send us your questions via Facebook, Twitter, or email. We are PontifaxPod on all social media and PontifaxPod at gmail.com. And you'll hear all of the answers on our anniversary special coming up in May. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. Ooh, very sexy. <laughs> and I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes. From Peter to Francis. <laughs> this is episode 40, Pope Sericius. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad we had the sexy voice for such a sexy name. Right? Sericius. <laughs> but before we can talk about Sericius, we need to kind of sort of go to confessional. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do. Bless us, Father, for we have sinned, sort of. It has been five episodes since our last confession in Julius's episode which is episode 37 we referred to the conception and the birth of Jesus as an immaculate conception kind of offhandedly and we got a couple comments about this so we're going to issue a not necessarily an apology but a, a clarification for everyone so if you are talking about the Immaculate Conception, it does not have to do with the birth of Christ. It actually refers to the conception of Mary in the womb of St. Anne without original sin by the merits of her son, give or take. So when we said Immaculate Conception, we shouldn't have because it w we weren't talking about the Immaculate Conception. What we were talking about, Christ's birth, is actually called the virgin birth or the incarnation so we want to make sure that we keep our terminology straight right and i just an interesting point while i was making sure that we got this all correct before we issued a clarification the immaculate conception the actual conception of mary without original sin wasn't actually church doctrine until 1854 Ooh, learning things get some facts in there yeah, it was declared ex cathedra by Pope Pius IX in a papal bull called Ineffabilis Deus. There you go. There's some information for you. A papal bull all about Mary. A papal bull all about Mary and her immaculate conception because she's the one with the immaculate conception. Jesus has the incarnation. Though his, his conception's weird too, so... Yeah, um, it, it, if you look into the definition of the incarnation, which is the the uh, conception of Christ, it talks about how the two hypostatic unions were made flesh in the Theotokos Christ-bearer. We're going to get up to that in time, so yeah. We just wanted to make sure that we were really clear because we had some questions and some comments and we wanted to make sure everyone understood their weird catholic terminology so and i'm sure once deacon dad gets there he's gonna be like no mm -hmm, mm -hmm, i fully expect that so well that's it so uh that's our pseudo confessional in nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti amen so pope sericius our sexy name pope are you ready for him um, yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go. I haven't been ready all day for anything. Anything I've done all day. It's just been bad. It's been a bad day. We are diving in headfirst and uh, flying by the seat of our pants, but that's not any different than normal. So here we go. <laughs> Pope Sericius was born sometime in 334 in Rome, and his father's name was Tibertius. 
not as sexy of a name. No, but it's a very nice, strong, manly name. It is, and we have dealt with Saint Tibertius in the past, so it's it's a good holy name. And and that works perfectly because his family were quite dedicated Christians, and as a result, Sericius started his church career early in life and is recorded on his epitaph as being a lector and a deacon under Pope Liberius, so 352 to 366. If he joined service at the beginning of Liberius's papacy, that would make him about 18 years old when he started with the church. So he had quite a long time to prove himself and make his distinction, because at the time of the death of Pope Damasus, our last pope, he would have been 50 years old. So that's a church career of over 30 years, potentially. But he must have put those many years to very good use somehow. Because on December 17th of 384, one week after the death of Pope Damasus, Sericius was unanimously elected to be the next pope. I like when they're unanimous. I can't say that word. When they are unanimous. We don't actually see... Very many unanimous elections. The, the last unanimous election would have been Pope Fabian, who was elected by acclamation after the bird was the word. Yeah, the bird landed on him and they all went him. Yeah, exactly. And let's not forget how incredibly juxtaposed this is with Pope Damasus, who literally became Pope after a massacre to suppress divided loyalty. So, yeah. So this is a nice change of pace and a pretty strong telling of the clergy's feelings about Sericius, which were better than Damasus. Now, side note, this didn't stop our antipope Ursinus from last week from popping back up from his exile in Milan to try and push his own cause and his legitimacy and say, hey, that other pope is dead, it should be me now. But this was shut down very quickly by the Emperor Valentinian III, who was in Milan and was able to shut that down before anything really became of note. And we also know this because Valentinian went so far as to praise Sericius for being extremely pious in a letter that he sent to Rome. So there's no doubt about what side the Emperor was on about that debate. And this is pretty telling. We have a unanimous vote. Praise from the Emperor, so even though we don't have any sources or commentary on it, clearly Sericius had an amazing reputation. So this is where you get to make predictions if you think he's going to live up to it as Pope. You want me to make a prediction today? Yes, yep. Just to see, you know, good reputation. You think he's going to do well? You know, I hope so. We could use a good Pope. A less murdery Pope. A Pope who gets points for things other than scandal. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what I need. A, a good Calixtus. Mm, yes, we need a good Calixtus. Well, I will tell you, he is going to be quite an active Pope, and he is going to make his mark on church history. And he's going to have the opportunity to start with that pretty much right out of the gate. Because almost right away, Pope Sericius receives a letter from Bishop Himerius of Tarragona in Hispania. Spain, asking him to clarify and outline the church position on 15 different concepts, including things like church discipline and clerical celibacy and sacraments like baptism and penance. Like, this is so early on in his papacy that this letter comes to him that the letter's still addressed to Pope Damasus. Oh, that, yeah, that's early. Yeah, so this is like right away, hey, uh, we need you to clarify a lot of church doctrine here. This is going to be the perfect opportunity for Sericius to drive home this burgeoning concept of papal supremacy, because why not? He is going to lay down the official word, disseminate it across the empire, and the whole of Christendom will be expected to fall into line. So Sericius responds to this letter on February 10th, 385, and he sends it to Himerius, but he also sends it out as general decrees to all the provinces. So you wrote in to me, and you needed all this information. I'm writing this letter in clarification to you, but I'm going to send it to everybody. I'm going to clarify for everybody so nobody else asks me. 
And this letter, because it was so widely disseminated, has been preserved in full, which is pretty amazing, because this is the oldest completely preserved papal decretal in all of church history. Cool. So um, just, just so that we are on the same page, a decretal is a legally binding, authoritative decision on discipline and canon law. So when the decretals go out, they're big business. And this is worth a point already, right? The fact that this is the oldest one preserved, very, very, very cool. Yes, it's not the first decretal ever issued because we have Sericius mentioning other decretals from Liberius within his own decretal, but we don't have those. So yay, Sericius, you're getting points. And uh, this is probably going to score him a little bit more than just the point for the preservation, because just like Damasus did, Sericius is going to give the people a clearly defined and outlined guide on exactly what the church expects. They have a clarified Bible, and now they will have a clarified church policy. And for the sake of everyone and my voice, I am not going to read you the decreed a letter in full, because it's like 20 very long paragraphs and would take a full episode just to get through, because they didn't believe in punctuation back then. We're going to just kind of summarize it in chunks. Chunks? Chonky? Chonky boys? So chonkies. Well, these are these are much smaller, bite-sized chonks, but they came from much, much larger chonks, so here we go. In the greeting, Pope Sericius informs Humerius, the bishop he's writing to, that Damasus is dead, Sericius is his successor. Hey, boy. Damasus is dead. <laughs> yeah, and he's saying, so I'm here now, but remember... As me here now, I am also the heir of Peter. So, he says, quote, We bear the burdens of all who are oppressed, or rather the blessed apostle Peter, who in all things protects and preserves us, the heirs as we trust, of his administration, bears them in us. I have the sovereign authority of the church, respect my authorita, but more gentle, so... As far as baptism goes, in this letter, he reconfirms baptism as an indelible sacrament, confirms that Arians now coming to Catholicism do not need to be baptized again, neither do the Novationists or anyone else, but he also states that Christians should not be baptized on Christmas, Epiphany, or the Feast of the Apostles, but rather on Easter or Pentecost, and it should only be done on these days for the catechumens who had already gone through every other step before baptism and had applied at least 40 days before Easter or Pentecost to show their serious commitment. Unless we're talking about infants, because infants anytime! You gotta do those infants right away, something might happen. On penance, he summarizes it basically as laps I need penance, penance for a good long time. So I gotta read this first sentence for you. Quote, You believed that the apostolic see should be consulted about those who, having performed penance, again hungered, just as dogs and swine returning to old vomit and wallowing pond. Oh, 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 buddy. (laughs) For the military belts, the pleasures of theater, new marriages and forbidden liaisons whose manifest incontinence was shown by children born after absolution. Uh, so basically, people who fall away from the church and its expectations are like dogs and swine who, who want to go back to their vomit. You. <laughs> so he says uh, that, yeah, even though they're terrible and awful, and they should be given an opportunity to continue penance in return, but if they had had a clerical position, they should not occupy a clerical position again. So if you have been a lapsi or you had fallen away from the church, yes, you could come back to the church. Yes, you will receive communion. No, you cannot hold office. You have to be part of the laity. Fair enough. Clerical celibacy and celibacy in general. This I have broken up into marriage and then clerical celibacy. So the first one we're going to read is just a straight quote. He says, You also asked about marriage, whether someone can marry a girl who was betrothed to another. We forbid by all means that this be done, because that blessing which a priest imposes to a girl who is to be married, if it is violated by transgression, 
a kind of sacrilege among the faithful. So you cannot marry a woman who has been engaged to someone else. That is a sacrilege. So the first bit on clerical celibacy and continence has to do with monks and nuns who are banging in their monasteries and convents. Apparently this was a problem. <laughs> All right. He decrees that they should be banished from their communities, quote, thrust away in personal imprisonment, ewailing with constant lamentation with so great an outrage they can roast in the purifying fire of repentance, so at least that death, out of consideration of mercy alone, forgiveness through the grace of communion can even assist them. Get out. Yeah, so if you are a monk or a nun and you be banging, um... Yeah, it's not going to go well for you. He he has no sympathy for you. Now on to what he thinks about celibacy for priests. Quote, Why indeed were priests ordered to live in the temple far from their homes in the year of service? Just for this reason. So they could not engage in physical contact, even with wives. No banging. No banging. No banging. Even with wives and that shining in integrity of conscience they might offer acceptable service to God. The period of service having been completed, use of wives was permitted to them for reason of succession alone because no one from a tribe other than Levi was directed to be admitted to the ministry of God. So if you are going to be a priest when you're doing your year of service, you cannot have any banging. But when you're done with that, you can use your wife, but only to make offspring. And then there's a little offhand mention that Christ is the bridegroom of the church, and he wants to find her without stain and blemish. Sexism. <laughs> so clergymen who did marry were allowed to, but could only marry once, and only to a virgin, not a divorced woman or a widow or a prostitute. And any clergyman who marries a widow or a second wife should be stripped of his position and made a layman. I know you said layman, but I totally thought you said lame man. <laughs> also a lame man. We're going to break his knees. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he has some fervent opinions, so, you know, maybe. Then he has some comments about men who were like other men and how this should affect their celibacy. So he says, Men who were penitents, twice married, or a husband of a widow, may never be promoted, and men who had become civil or military officers should not come back and return to the clergy. So if you left to be a soldier or you married a widow, you cannot come back. You're not allowed to serve in the church anymore. And of course, women are not permitted in the house of clerics. Don't visit. Don't go in there. Then he made a couple points about minimum ages of service of certain church roles, so how long each role is supposed to be served, as well as this whole idea that no bishop should ever be consecrated without knowledge of the apostolic see. So you cannot consecrate a bishop unless the Pope knows about it. That's fair, too. And then the letter ends with a farewell and an explanation that this letter would also be sent to the Carthaginians, the Beatitians, the Lusitanians, and Gallicans, and all bordering provinces, so that no man could use ignorance as an excuse for doing the wrong thing and trying to get out of the sanctions that would follow. Now, this is the first decree at all that we have reference from the Pope on the matter of a mandatory celibacy for priests. And although we see that it's not going to reach, like, full, complete enforcement yet, it's not long after this that it will be used and fully enforced under Pope Leo I in the 440s, who I am currently working on. Oh boy, that's going to be a long one. <laughs> oh no. I'm, I'm not going to give you any more than that. He sends out these decretals, and then he follows these decrees up, by convening a synod at Rome on the 6th of January the following year, giving, you know, the decretal time to get to every area of the empire and be absorbed. And he convenes 80 bishops to confirm the points of the letter into nine canon laws of the church on the main issues of celibacy and the election and consecration of bishops. Then they send them out again, particularly to North Africa, and now it was canon law, it is absolutely expected to be conformed with. 
And he also sends on a letter detailing the aspects of the consecration of new bishops with guidelines, like a bishop should always be consecrated by more than a single bishop, and it should be bishops of his own church. And there's an expectation here, basically, that ignorance would not be taken as an excuse, and the apostolic see maintained the authority to impose all of these sanctions when guidelines weren't being followed. He's really laying it on thick. You have your policy. I have made it so you must conform. Otherwise, I'm coming for you. And after laying out exactly what his papacy and his church was going to be about, it's probably not all that surprising that the next thing he wants to do is crack down on all the various heresies and internal disputes that had managed to fly up under the radar when all of the Arian controversy was taking center stage. That's fair, too. So we're going to deal with a handful of them. Only a handful? Ah, only a handful. One, two, three, four, five, six. A handful. A handful and some. So, in the first few years of Sericius's papacy, there was a Roman monk called Jovinian who started to cause a stir, pretty much in direct contradiction to the decretals that Sericius had just sent across the empire. Jovinian was preaching against any higher merit of a celibate life, as well as against fasting and good works, which is a, a weird thing to be against, but he argued that fasting and good works weren't necessary, and that Mary and Joseph had had more children after Christ, so therefore celibacy couldn't be of the highest merit, because even Mary wasn't celibate. Therefore, virgins should be equal in virtue to widows and married women, or even remarried women, because Mary. So this directly contradicts the long-established doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It's great that this is the episode that we talked about the Immaculate Conception. So, to explain, the perpetual virginity of Mary dictates that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus that she did not have more children, she did not have sex with Joseph. We're not going to deep too deeply into the rabbit hole of, like, biblical interpretations of Jesus's alleged brothers, because it's complex and contested with a lot of different viewpoints. So what you need to know for church orthodoxy's sake is if you follow the perpetual virginity doctrine, it is understood that these quote-unquote brothers are either men close enough to him to be referred to as brothers like the apostles were, or that they were even maybe closely connected cousins, and that the Greek word adelphoi could refer to either a cousin, a brother, or even a stepbrother. There are people who mention this word in relation to Jesus, like Joseph, Jude, Simon, and James. We have a couple extant religious texts that became part of the Apocrypha when Damasus decided which books were actually the Bible that suggests that Joseph, Jude, Simon, and James were Joseph's children from a marriage before Mary. Because, like, it's very clearly in the Bible that, that that when Jesus dies, he, like, tells one of his apostles to, like, take care of Mary. So, mm -hmm. like, we have to assume that Joseph is dead, and if Jesus had any other siblings, he'd be like, yo, take care of mom. And not give yeah. it to, like, this man. Exactly. I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. You can see why this becomes such a problem with translation. Because that word Adelphoi in Greek is very, very ambiguous. It means, and I even checked this with, with some of the ancient Greek scholars that I know. Hello, Ryan. And they said the word could mean cousin, brother, or stepbrother. So that is that in itself is already so vague. Either way. It's clear why this and Jovian's ideas of not having fasting or good works or maintaining a celibate life were a problem for the church, particularly when he started to gain a following among, in particular, the monks and nuns of Rome who'd been banging. Ah, uh, yes. Sericius was pretty clear about what he thought of monks and nuns who were banging in the monasteries, so... He calls another synod in 390 to be held at Rome, where he expressly condemns Jovinian's teachings on Mary's virginity, or lack thereof, as total heresy, excommunicates Jovinian for his ideas, as well as eight of his followers. Quite a lot. 
Yeah, he, well, I mean, he probably, some of them were probably monks and nuns who were like, yeah. They were banging. Yeah, so they're getting out now. They're, they are full-on excommunicated. So this conclusion was also sent to Ambrose of Milan, who is easily one of Sericius's biggest and most influential bishops of the age, as, as we've already talked about. And he also holds a perfunctory second synod in Milan for the Pope, basically loudly affirming and reiterating the Pope's decision on this issue. And then we have Jerome, who's still around, writing against Jovinian in his work Adversus Jovinianum. Now, side note, just as an interesting point, some people call Jovinian one of the first forerunners of Protestantism since he pressed for marriage rather than celibacy. I'm not buying this argument because there's so much more to Protestantism than just clerical marriage or any of that. So it's a weird argument to make, but there are people out there that do. So around the same time, there was another clergyman, Bishop Bonasus of Sardica, who was also arguing that Mary had not maintained her virginity after the birth of Christ and had more children. And just like with Jovinian, a synod is called in Capua to deal with this alleged heresy. And Sericius and Ambrose both reject Bonasus's ideas. Bonasus's. That's a thing I have not said out loud before. <laughs> That's a name. I said it correctly, but goodness. But seeing as this was outside of Rome, Sericius made the decision to refer judgment to Anicius of Thessalonica and the other Illyrian bishops, which is a good move because he's basically empowering his bishops, but going, you know what to do. Condemn this dude with his supreme authority while still bolstering some of his far-flung communities. And the bishops condemn Bonasus's heresy. <laughs> Bonasus's heresy. And of course, Sericius approved of their decision. I love that. Bonasus's. It's just, you know, when you read a word, you don't read it that way, and then it comes out of your mouth and you go, oh, wow, that's a sound. Been there, done that. So then we come back to the Miletian Schism that we talked about last week. Remember, this is not the Miletian Schism under Miletius of Lycopolis, who made a fuss around the Council of Nicaea, but Miletius, the Bishop of Antioch. Although they kind of end up in the same place, because this Miletius is a supporter of the semi-Aryan Homoean formula instead of the Homoousian Nicene Creed, so that had not gone well for this man as a whole. Miletius of Antioch. Miletius of Antioch had been exiled three times by the Aryan emperors who didn't like the fact that he was only semi-Aryan. They didn't like his middle-of-the-road kind of stand. He had been deposed by Pope Damasus, who didn't support him because he wasn't Hamusian enough, and another bishop, Paulinus, had been put in his place. This is that Eustathian side that we talked about last week. Damasus and Jerome and Athanasius had all supported Paulinus and had been totally okay with the fact that Miletius had been deposed. And this had started a schism because it turns out that Miletius had a lot of followers. But where we are now in the story, Miletius has actually died. He died in 381. But this did not end the schism that he had started, because his followers still absolutely refused to acknowledge Paulinus as the new bishop of Antioch whatsoever. And when Miletius died, they decided, no, no, we're, we're not just going to give back into this. They prolonged the schism by electing their own successor for Miletius. Wow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is going to get complicated, so here we go. The Miletians, they elect their own successor, a presbyter called Flavian. Uh, uh, <laughs> Flavortown? What? <laughs> a presbyter called Flavian. And then after they elect him, Paulinus, who was the choice of the Pope and everybody else, died in 388. No. And his supporters, the Eustathian group, decided that two could play at this game, and they elect their own successor, a man called Evagrius. Jesus. And then Evagrius dies in 392. Stop picking sick men to do things. Yeah, so they're just going back and forth. They're like, nope, I'm not recognizing your guy. We're going to acknowledge our own guy, and then when he dies, we'll still we'll replace him with one of our own guys. So there's basically two people constantly in schism. It just depends on where in the story you are, which guy we're actually talking about. At this point... 
Pope Sericius has to step in with advisement from the embassy sent from Theophilius of Olendria and St. John Chrysostom and Acacius of Barroea, who are, they're advising the Pope on this. And he agrees to recognize Flavian as the actual Antiochian bishop, even though he was selected from the Miletian side. He just wants to put an end to the schism. Flavortown's the new bishop. Flavortown is the new bishop. It's also possible that before Evagrius died, he and Flavian were able to come to some sort of arrangement to not have another successor elected, which is kind of suggested in some sources. But we definitely have records that the Pope officially wanted to end this schism by instructing a council, Council of Caesarea, in 339, to recognize Flavian. They say, job done, quick faffing, just get back to work and no more schisms. We're going to leave that there. We'll see how it goes. And if we're to believe the Liber Pontificalis, Sericius also took harsh measures against the Manichaeans. Manny and friends. Manny and friends! We haven't heard about them for a while. We haven't. This is what the Liber Pontificalis has to say about how Sericius treated Manny and friends. Quote, He found Manichaeans in the city and dispatched them into exile and ordained that they should not partake of communion with the faithful because the holy body of the Lord ought not to be mutilated in a polluted mouth. Oh, wow. He, he called their mouths polluted. He is so incredibly vicious with people. I love it. He ordained that if any Manichaean were converted and returned to the church, he should in no wise be admitted to communion, except he were kept in the restrictions of a monastery as one guilty every day of his life so that he might afflict himself with fasting and prayers and prove himself under every day trial until the day of his death, and thus through clemency of the church might obtain his viaticum. So you can't have communion ever... Until you're just about to die. Yeah, until you're about to die, but only if you torture yourself every second of every day before that point. He really loves this idea. He wants that for the monks and the nuns who are banging. He wants this for Manny and friends. So, But there are other aspects of history that call this into question, including Duchenne, who is the church historian that we've referenced a lot in this show, who personally edited versions of the Liber Pontificalis. So he has some comments about this. He points out that St. Augustine visited Rome in the beginning of Sericius's papacy and at that time, Augustine was a Manichaean. Oh no. He was a friend of Manny. <laughs> Anyways, there's nothing in Augustine's commentary that hints or even suggests that any measures were being taken against the Manichaeans at this time. And uh, Duchenne argues that if there had been something to include, Augustine definitely would have wanted to include it. You know, because he was one of them, and then he wanted to be like, look how much not I am. I'm not one of them anymore. Like, no, no. So Augustine definitely would have been someone to include it. In fact, Duchenne suggests that this passage that we quoted would be more accurately attributed to a future pope, Leo I again. Maybe that didn't happen for Sericius. That being said, it's not entirely unreasonable that Sericius could have implemented some kind of anti-Manichaean decrees after Augustine's visit, especially when we know that the emperors, currently Honorius and Valentinian III, were also going after Manny and his friends quite hard. We're not with them, kind of. Yeah, exactly. The emperors really hate the Manichaeans. And this has gone on, like, this whole time while everything else has been going down. The one thing that they can agree on is that the Manichaeans suck. There's another possibility that he wrote decrees against them and their theology without out-and-out out calling for any action or excommunications, but we really don't know. We just have this reference in the Liber Pontificalis, and we know how trustworthy it is. So there's that. And then finally, there's a case that's sort of heresy, but different. And this is the case of the Bishop of Avila in Spain, Priscillian. Now, Priscillian was a strict ascetic, and as a result, he handled things a little bit differently in his bishopric, which gained him some very close adherents. For example, he liked to study not just the Bible, but even the texts that are now considered apocrypha. He wanted to meet for worship outside of the church, like in villas or in his home, 
he liked to have men and women pray together. And he liked to have people receive the Eucharist, but not eat it until later. He often didn't attend church during Lent in favor of meditative prayer in nature. He loved to fast on a Sunday, which seems pretty harmless, but remember, Miletiades had expressly forbidden this. He even handed out that consecrated bread on Sundays to make sure that people freaking ate something. And for him, for Priscillian, this all came down to his ideas of perfection on three levels. Mind, body, and spirit. And only those who reached perfection through these practices could receive the wisdom and light of God. This is the world's first yogi in Christianity. <laughs> there, there were more happening at this point, I'm sure. But this man caused a pretty big stir in Spain and upset a lot of the bishops there because he was so unorthodox. And the one he upset the most was a man called Ithicius of Osanuba and Hydatius of Merida, who wanted Priscillian deposed. And so they went ahead and accused him of heresy, saying his philosophies were definitely Gnostic, not Christian Orthodox. And you can see why, right? It's that whole inner knowledge, perfection, mind, body, spirit, everybody kind of taking responsibility for their own salvation type of thing. And in 384, they presented a case against Priscillian at a council in Bordeaux under Magnus Maximus, the new emperor. And this did not go well. Priscillian was investigated as a criminal in a secular court and forced to admit to twisted, inflated charges. Then he was found guilty of sorcery and was executed by beheading with five of his followers. That escalated quickly. That is exactly what the Pope said. That escalated quickly? Yeah, he was not happy at all. He didn't want Priscillian to continue practicing his altered form of Christianity, and he would have confirmed and agreed with a deposition from his position as bishop, but death is not how the church is handling things right now. They just they got done with being decimated. They are all about excommunication and reconciliation with penance. So much penance. Not killing. Every second of every day, penance. Yeah. So he's all about letting this man be tortured by himself for the rest of his life. But how dare you cut his head off? So Pope Sericius, Ambrose of Milan, and the Bishop of Tours, Martin, all write to the Emperor to protest the charge and execution. And the Pope is so mad that he excommunicated Ithicius, the bishop who had presented Priscillian's case to Magnus Maximus. But unfortunately, you know, the deed is done, and it's not really going to amount to anything because that Emperor, Magnus Maximus, would be killed shortly after. And his successor ended up deposing both Ithicius and Hydradius anyways. So the Pope was real mad about this, but he's not the one that really had anything to do with the outcome because there was nothing that could be done to solve it. But he does write to the Spanish bishops and outlines conditions for Priscillian supporters to be restored to the church because, yeah, their leader had just been unjustly killed and uh, you need to take these these people back. That all said, Priscillianism survived beyond Priscillian himself and would still be mentioned, although as, as heresy, up until the mid-6th century. So even though he done got beheaded, his ideas are going to live on and cause problems. So that's all of his cracking down on heresy. So now he has established that all of the policy for the church, he has cracked down on heresy. And like any other good pope, he also made sure that Christian building efforts were underway during his papacy. The one he's most famous for is the Basilica over St. Paul's tomb on the Via Ostensis, which had been rebuilt and refurbished by the emperors, but it had also been personally dedicated by the pope on its completion in 390. And part of how we know this, of course, despite the, most of the church being destroyed in a fire in 1823, so sad. Uh, some pillars have survived, and one of them has Sericius's name engraved on it, and it can still be seen on the site of the church today by the side entrance, if you go. Now, on another note, before we wrap up, uh -huh. there are some sources that credit Sericius with being the first pope to actually call himself pope as an exclusive title just for himself. This is extremely unlikely. 
Pope was was not an exclusive term at this time, and it wouldn't even be reserved even unofficially until the 6th century, and officially in the 11th century by Pope Gregory VII. And the same is said in reference to the phrase Pontifex Maximus. This seems to be a misunderstanding of Gratian's renunciation of the title during Sorisius's papacy, even though we, we know that that happened in Damasus's papacy. Pontifex Maximus in relation to the Pope, rather than the pagan high priest, actually doesn't come into regular use until the Renaissance, which is all about renewed passion for things that were all about ancient Rome. So they will pick that title up then, not before. So extremely unlikely that this man was the first man to call himself Pope as the way that we understand Pope, but some people like to say he did. And then he died. Of course. Vicious Sericius is dead now. <laughs> Do you have to say it sexy? Um, no. Vicious Sericius <laughs> has died. <laughs> and I'm going to say the boring thing, which is he died presumably of natural causes on November 26th of 399 at the age of 65. We could say that because we know what year he was born. He was buried in the catacombs of Priscilla on the Via Solaria, and his tomb was on that 7th century itinerary for religious pilgrims. His tomb was discovered by Giovanni Battista de Rossi, and it was the inscription there that we got the details of his early life from at the beginning of the episode. At some point, his remains were moved from that tomb and are now in the Basilica of San Silvestro with Pope Sylvester. So that's him! And it's time to rate Vicious Sericius. Papatum infallium. So his letter is the first entirely preserved papal decretal in history. That is worth a point. More than that, we have these decretals actually dealing with real ecclesiastical problems and setting out actual policies and disciplines. They are very harsh, but this is more than just a theological discussion. This is uniformity for the church. This is actually carrying out what is going to be done about the things that they all think about. So, you know, his letters are carried across the empire, confirmed in synods in various provinces. He's calling all the bishops into line everywhere. That's pretty huge. He's reinforcing the growing authority of the Pope and the church as a whole. He's reinforcing the claim that they're the successors of Peter, that Peter spoke through them, quote, he protects us in all the manners of his administration and guides us as his heirs. And he's damn well making sure that Rome maintains its importance over Constantinople. So it's pretty good. What do you want to give him? I think it's probably around like a seven, a six or a seven. I'm leaning. Yeah. Yeah. So which one? Mm, let's go with a seven. Okay. I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him a seven as well because I'm going to give him a six for all of the good work that he did and one for having the first entirely preserved decretal because cool. Fourteen for Papatum of Valium. Fructus prohibitum. I have a quote from the Catholic Encyclopedia. It's not really scandal. It's bad-ish, kind of. Let's see what you think of this. Quote, Sericius was a strong personality but not a thinker. He distrusted the new breed of ascetic intellectuals. He acquiesced in the expulsion of Jerome from the city of Rome. He distanced himself from Paulinus of Nola. His approach to theological questions was to cite Roman tradition and authority. Yet this firmness often placed him in good stead. He played an important role in the promotion of the authority of the apostolic see, and he tended to alienate people. Vicious Sericius. Strong personality and not a thinker. So there's that. And Jerome, by the way, gets mentioned there. He was expelled from Rome at this point on charges of having improper relations with a widow. Jerome was? Yeah, that man who hung out with Damasus all the time. Not terribly surprising. And it also seems to me like something Sericius absolutely would have supported, him being expelled. Because, uh... He, he was not into having relations with widows, so... Not having relations at all, but widows especially. How dare you? You can't use them as a wife. They've already been used by someone else. You cannot have sloppy seconds, sir. It's not really terribly surprising that Jerome is very scathing against Sericius when he writes about him. He calls out his lack of judgment 
And we also have the words of Paulinus of Nola, who is another ascetic who visited Rome in 395. And we actually have his own words on meeting with the Pope, who he describes as being quite haughty and guarded. The words literally translate to proud of discrimination. <laughs> vicious, vicious. Man. He is so vicious. Now, um, just for fairness sake, Paulinus, this man who said that he was proud of his discrimination, uh, Sorishus might have been culled towards him because there were some doubts about how Paulinus had been elected and consecrated to his bishopric, and he might have really treated uh, Tyrannius Rufinus, a source that we've mentioned a lot, quite poorly, who got himself into some controversy over some writing he'd done about Origen, but the Pope had confirmed that Rufinus hadn't done anything wrong, and he wasn't worthy of being excommunicated, so he wasn't particularly happy when people treated him poorly. So he might have had a reason to be vicious sericious in this case. But basically, that's what we have for this category. This is a strong personality man who is proud of his discrimination. Can we give him anything in this category? I mean, I'll give him, I'll give him like a point for being vicious sericious. Okay, I'll give him one as well. And then all he gets is a two. And that's fair. Seculari impactum. Did he have an impact on the daily life of the laity? Oh, by the way, um, since we're entering a time period where pretty much all of our population is going to be Christians, this idea of secular that we talk about in this category is going to stretch a bit to include mainly people who are not part of a church. So when we start talking about the secular population, we're talking about the laity rather than people who are involved in the church. Just so we're clear. Okay. So uh, some of his decrees definitely will strip certain people from their church position, especially banging months and nuns. <laughs> yeah, and especially if you, for some reason, married a widow. Yeah, or you went and you had to be a soldier for a while. You are no longer part of the clergy, so you are part of the laity. You're affected by that. The discussion of priestly celibacy will change the lives of families that have priests in them, which still exist at this point. It's going to change family dynamic and relationship dynamic for people within the church. That's an impact on the secular population. And widows are certainly going to be limited to uh, who they can have any sort of contact with, especially churchmen. They're not going to even be allowed to be around them. So there are some impacts here. So what do you want to give them? I'll give them like a, gosh, how about like a, a Three, he's disrupting okay. families and stuff because the, they weren't rules before, but after this point, they're going to be, like, regular rules. Except for, like, the widow yeah. thing. That's a little weird. Um, I'm going to give him a four for that as well, because it is, like, family dynamics, that's fairly personal, and that's going to hit people right where it counts. So that's a seven for Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Fry? Mm -hmm. This is this man's round. Oh, you vicious sericus is a hot man? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, he is not. I'm spoiling it for you, but okay. The one that we judge on is the least outrageous picture of this man. Okay, let's go. Let's go. You got me all hyped up. Go. Oh, tell me you wow. don't see a bulldog. <laughs> that is definitely a bull. Yeah, or like a a Rottweiler. Yeah, it's um it is a jowly man with the big poofed of cheeks. I you know. I I thought this one was amusing and then I went back to see all the other pictures I had saved for you in this category and oh boy, this one is boring by comparison, but um I don't know. I like it. He he looks like he's just doing that thing when you pretend to be a monkey and you poof your cheeks out but your lips get really close together and He looks like he's about to punch somebody. <laughs> he's vicious Sarisha. Yeah, but this one's a good one. I mean, I'm, I, I was, I'm gonna give him like a six for it, but I'm also just because we cannot rate on the other ones, but they are so ridiculous. I'm giving him a bonus point in this category just to cover it. You know what? I want to give him a bonus point for his lovely plate decoration. <laughs> he is very fancy in this one. He's got some flowers. Things are happening. There's a background. It's got the fleur de lis. He's going to go punch somebody. <laughs> so what do you want to give him with that bonus point in mind? Oh, with the bonus point in mind, he'll get a six, yeah. I just like that he looks like he's about to go wail on somebody. 
Yeah. Someone, some, some clergyman's talking about banging. <laughs> banging in the monastery. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I, I gotta give it an eight for that now because it fits the imagery so perfectly. That's gonna give him a total of 3.5 in this category. Now we're gonna have some fun. This one is from the, it's the Saint, it's at the National Museum of Antigua in Lisbon, Portugal. And this is a, from a painting of Sericius blessing Saint Auta and Prince Conan. This one is not the fun one, but it is weird. So there it is. <laughs> okay, does he have a cigarette? What is that? It is unfortunate shading, really, because okay. he's, I know, but it does, it absolutely looks like he's just smoking. Um, <laughs> and he also looks like he's actively dying. <laughs> no, he is very, very high. Look at this man. He's got his blunt. He's just talking. <laughs> But he looks like, you know, oh gosh, what movie or show is it where somebody has like life draining powers? You just oh yeah, suck yes, it. yes. Any any film with a life draining power where they put on the the really hollow cheek makeup, yes. And the people behind him look like they're over it. They they are. <laughs> like please, 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 just stay sober for ten minutes, sir. Yeah. Okay, are you ready for my favorite? You know that artist who never gets any better? Mm -hmm. We've been talking about a little bit about drag queen brows. Yes. Here you go. Wow. (laughs) Those are are some brows. You know, it's funny because we just we posted uh, Pope Julius's episode and he's wearing the long papal tiara in one of the photos that we used. And people kept sending me pictures of cone heads (laughs) on Twitter in response. This is so much more conehead than the 100% with the eyebrows and everything, like the 90s eyebrows. He is 100% ready for a drag show. Yeah. 100%. And look, so this one is so much different from the ones we've seen from this I artist. Know. He started putting on wrinkles. He's got some real nice, he's got a nice bow lip here. This is a man in makeup. Mm-hmm. It is 100% a man in makeup. So maybe the artist is just improving. A little bit. <laughs> but in ridiculous ways. But guess what? We're not done. There's one more. He looks like uh, his his makeup looks like Mimi from the Drew Carey show. Like he's got the eyebrows yes. and he's got the little tiny lips. And then he's got like yeah. really dark shadow all the way up to his eyebrow. <laughs> the contour is harsh. Yeah. Okay, there's one more. There you go. Ooh, okay. This is a man with a ball on his head. He's got that titty on his head. <laughs> this is him after the drag makeup comes off? This is before and after? <laughs> I don't know if that thing is just too tight, but like directly under where the, the, the hat it's is. pushing his skin. <laughs> his skin's going out. <laughs> you were not expecting. No. Vicious Sericious is his drag name. <laughs> yeah, he scored a 3.5 in this category. If we didn't have a picture that we normally rated on, he would have gotten a 10. <laughs> Tempest Pontificus. December of 384 to November 26 of 399. So that's 15 years, a score of 3.75. Not bad. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is November 26th. Interestingly, his name is not originally in the Roman martyrology, but gets added by Benedict the Fourteenth because he was, quote, distinguished for his learning, piety, and zeal for religion, condemning various heretics and strengthening ecclesiastical discipline. Oh, he became a saint because he, he punched people who were banging. 100%. He's not a patron saint, though, so this leaves our door open. What do you want to make him a patron saint of? Wow. Okay. I think it either has to be drag or mean girls or um the cock block. <laughs> He's the ultimate uh, clerical cock block. He sure so is. <laughs> so which one do you like? The most. I don't know. I kind of want him to be the patron saint of the burn book. Oh, yes. That works perfectly. 
So he is the patron saint of the burn book. <laughs> total score. His total score is beefy. Uh, he's scored. His score is a 31.25. I must ask you a final question. Does this man have all of the popey pizzazz that is required for a fabulous papal bull? Oh, no. You're not feeling it for Vicious Serenity? Mm-hmm, no. You know, I would have been absolutely stunned if we gave it to him because that would have been three in a row, and I never foresaw that happening because we have so many no's. Do Do you want to roll for it? Nah, you know, I have, I'm not that moved for him. I'm not. But I do want to point out that he's in fifth place. Wow, what? He is behind. Let's see. He is behind Damasus, our top scorer, Peter, Clement, Clement and Calixtus. So, so that is a thing. No papal bull for him. No bull. That w- he's gonna write so many nasty things in his burn book about <laughs> But that is not the end of our episode because we have a Pope lunch. We're going to get real serious for a minute oh, with this Pope Oh, what a terrible lunch. place to have hiccups at. Well, you know, maybe maybe we don't feel very, maybe we feel very happy about this. It's it's serious stuff, but I think you'll be pleased. We have groundbreaking news to share. Uh, although this doesn't deal directly with Pope Francis, this is directly relating to the ongoing efforts of the church to address the ongoing abuse crisis. And this is the first real concrete action that we're seeing coming out after that we just released our bonus episode on pbc so you'll be hearing this a little bit in the future but on march 13th of 2019 in melbourne australia cardinal george pell the former archbishop of sydney and melbourne was sentenced to six years in prison with no chance for parole for three years and eight months after the court found him guilty of sexually abusing two minors in 1996 at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne. Good. This is huge. Yeah, good. See, I said we wouldn't be too too sad about this man. Um, He was unanimously convicted on five charges, which carried the potential for 10 years in prison each. Uh, But the judge who sentenced Pell considered both the age and health of the cardinal in his ruling, because he's like 77 years old as well as the potential that he wouldn't live to see the end of his sentence. Uh, he also condemned the Cardinal's breach of trust and power as an abuse of power, as well as his presentation during the trial. So the judge said, your conduct was permeated by staggering arrogance. So this is not a man who has repented or feels badly. So he is going to jail. Cardinal Powell was, I don't know if we should call him Cardinal anymore. He's so technically, I guess, but he was serving as the prefect of the Vatican Secretariat for the Economy in 2017 when the charges were first brought against him, and he had to take a leave of absence to return to Australia to face the charges. At that time, Pope Francis also removed him from the Council of Cardinal Advisors. Ironically and awfully, Pell was also the head figure in dealing with the initial wave of the sexual abuse cases in the clergy in Australia because he was responsible for creating the response, which became famously known as the Melbourne response, which was very ineffective and inadequate method of handling the allegations and supporting victims. So, yeah, he was awful in so many ways. Well, bye to him. Yeah. So we will be watching the story because Pell will be appealing the charges at a hearing in June if sufficient grounds for an appeal can be justified. Doesn't look that way since it was unanimous conviction. And thanks to Elise Harris and Barb Fraze for breaking the news on Twitter. We looked at both uh, CNS and CBC articles to pull the info from. Because if you go to the CNS article, it's a lot more gentle about it. Whereas CBC is kind of like evil man. So, rotten prison. I don't feel bad. Yeah, please go. Go away. And on that note, let's make some more positive thank yous because we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. We have Brie Nicaren. Thank you very much for supporting us on Patreon. Ego te absolvo. 
And we also need to thank Totalis Rankium, and we need to thank Rex Factor, of course. And I also want to thank Jonathan Adley of the History of the Cups podcast, who is going to be joining us next week for a recording of our first collaboration, which by the time you hear this episode, you will have already heard, but we haven't recorded it yet. So very excited. Next week. Yeah. And we're, we're excited about future collaborations coming up. So that is awesome. Also, thank you to the American History Podcast because they've been shouting out about us a lot lately and the American Revolution Podcast. You guys are both awesome. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye, everybody. Oh, no, we got to be sexy. Goodbye. Farewell. <laughs> <laughs>